Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We hear about health disparities that impact communities of color. What does that really mean for boys and men of color here in Connecticut? Today, we explore that question with Dr. Wisdom Powell, who leads the Health Disparities Institute at the University of Connecticut. Now, later, we'll hear from a local nonprofit that works with youth on programs that encourage healthy lifestyles. But I want to welcome into our studios now, again, Dr. Wisdom Powell, director of the Yukon Health Disparities Institute, also associate professor of psychiatry. Uh, Dr. Powell, welcome to our show. Thank you. And you can join our conversation, too, the number 860-275-7266. Some of our listeners may not have uh, heard of the Yukon Health Disparities Institute. Let's start there, Dr. Powell. Tell us about this, this, uh, this place that you direct. Yeah, so the Health Disparities Institute is located at Yukon Health, and it is an institute that was uh, erected during uh, the administration of Governor Malloy, and it was designed really to address the increasing disparities and health equity uh, gaps for uh, Connecticut's medically served uh, medically underserved populations. So we have a legislative mandate, really, to uh, advance health equity and to reduce disparities among among Connecticut's most vulnerable and medically underserved individuals. We're going to be talking about this uh, first ever report card on health equity among boys and men of color. I was surprised to actually see that, that this is the first time that there's been a report looking at boys and men of color. Why is that, Dr. Pell? Well, I think let's just... Um, sort of think about this from a national perspective. So there are other uh, report cards on uh, men's health in other states, uh, Tennessee being one of the, I think, the first uh, or pioneers uh, uh, in this area. And uh, the report card really came about because we started to look um, across the country and recognize uh, that there are boys and men in our nation who have considerable untapped potential uh, to contribute to our our national economy and our local and state economies, but many of them were um, dying prematurely from preventable conditions and also being um, uh, sort of in the throes of a lot of other social inequities that contribute to poor health outcomes. Uh, when you uh, bring up that point, uh, I was thinking about another uh, important point raised in uh, this uh, report card that says people of color will be the majority of America's working class by 2032. So if uh, men of color are not living long lives, this also has an impact on our uh, how we compete in the global marketplace. Absolutely. I think it's really um, important to 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 lift that up because I think not many people are aware that we are in one of our most significant demographic transitions where people of color will become um, the majority in our nation. And that um, reality means that those individuals will also be a majority of the working population. And one of the things that we started to notice, and not just myself, but other scientists and economists around the country 
um, started to take note that there has been a dip in the labor force participation among working age men in our country. And let, there are a lot of factors that can contribute to such uh, a, a disparity. But we know for sure that men tend to live law, uh, shorter lives relative to women um, in our country. And that when we look at certain health outcomes, we see that men are dying disproportionately um, at higher rates um, when compared to women. In studio with me is Dr. Wisdom Powell, director of the Yukon Health Disparities Institute, also associate professor of psychiatry. As we uh, dive into this inaugural 2018 Connecticut report card on health equity among boys and men of color, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. So let's talk more about um, when you uh, thought about uh, sitting down and looking at this report, as, or trying to put this report together as a researcher. What were some of the challenges? Uh, because this has never been done before, looking at this particular uh, population, but we're also talking about black and African-American men, uh, Asian men, also uh, Hispanic men. Uh, where do you get this information? So um, I think one of the biggest challenges we faced, and it's not an uncommon challenge in, this, in the health equity space, is the lack of disaggregated data by race, ethnicity, gender, and age. And those data are not collected, um, you know, uh, systematically across indicators. And so we found a lot of unevenness in the amount of data that were available for specific subpopulations. For example, we know that Native American um, uh, men in our country have higher rates of suicide completion. And yet we found it very difficult to, um, to, com to you know, find that data um, in a space that we could report it by age, by uh, race, ethnicity, and by gender, you know. So it made it really uh, complicated. And I think the challenges with aggregating a report also are that data are not available uh, equally across years, right? So the most recent data where we found consistency was from 2015, um, and we're now in 2019, right? So there's a there's a lag in the um, availability of data, which makes it very difficult to tell a complete story about a population because we know, um, at least some of us believe, that what gets measured gets done. And so you need those data in order to be able to accurately pinpoint interventions and amount strategies to uh, eliminate the disparities that we see. I would uh, assume that would be one of your recommendations for the state moving forward is that you need to be able to track um, different demographics in a way that you can then look back and to see uh, what are some of the, the biggest impacts affecting them. That's right. That is one of the recommendations. And we also, um, you know, are recommending that we try as best as we can to uh, share data in uh, across systems, right, because men who are affected by unemployment or underemployment are likely also men who are disconnected from health systems and who are also likely not to be represented in higher education. So if we're not sharing those data across systems, then we can't mount multi-level strategies um, that will address those outcomes in ways that will produce a sustainable change.
I wanted to learn more when we talk about health disparities. You know, often we'll hear, you know, uh, men are more likely uh, to die from cardiovascular disease mm-hmm. or uh, maybe diabetes is more uh, a factor uh, in uh, the population affecting uh, African-American uh, men and women. But what about social factors? How do they contribute to these health disparities that we see, yeah. Dr. Powell? Yeah. So, you know, this is uh, an age old, um, you know, tension in our field, you know, so you know, how much of this is explained by individuals underlying genetic or biological factors and how much can we attribute to social drivers of well-being or social determinants of health. And I certainly can't answer that in its entirety, but I can say that um, we know that men are biologically vulnerable um, at birth, right? So male fetuses are more likely to die in utero. And men have fewer uh, immune-fighting T cells than than women. I mean, there are some biological uh, differences that are critical to point out. But if biological drivers were the sole forces underlying these disparities, then we would see similar rates of health outcomes and um, health problems in men from all different you know, groups. And we don't see that. What we, in fact, see is that there are some men and boys in our country that are more uh, vulnerable to these disparities. And we attribute those to factors in the spaces where they live, work, play, pray, get educated, and get health care. And so we know that those factors do do matter. You mentioned getting health care when we were talking about uh, the lack of firm data for different demographics. Could that, does that suggest that um, some of uh, the groups that we're talking about, when we talk about people of color, they're not accessing preventative care at the same rate as mm-hmm. their white counterparts? Right. And we do have some data to suggest that there are disparate uh, uh, utilization rates in populations by race, ethnicity. So that's a, that's a, a, f- a fact that's been borne out in data. But we also know that men, um, in particular, tend to underutilize services relative to women, despite um, insurance, you know, above and beyond having access to care. So there have to be, in some ways, other factors that are pushing men back from health systems and and causing a more delayed um, attention to their health needs. Uh, when we think about uh, the services being there but not accessing them at the rate of women, uh, your report uh, looked at behavioral health. And uh, yeah. when we look at uh, men and boys of color, um, can you tell us some of the findings there, Dr. Powell? Yeah. I mean, I think it's striking that in our nation we see um, that men and boys generally um, fare worse with respect to behavioral health outcomes such as substance dependence and substance abuse-related mortality. And we also see um, in the era of behavioral health, which includes, you know, mental health and substance abuse and addiction, that we see that boys and men uh, have higher rates of suicide completion relative to women and girls. That doesn't mean that women and girls don't attempt more because they actually do. But men and boys tend to use more lethal means of suicide completion. So they use guns, which are um, sadly highly effective means for completing suicide. So we know that there's a disparity there that warrants further attention. And there are lots of folks around the country who are trying to understand this mental health paradox. But um, we do know that some of that paradox might be explained by the fact that men don't necessarily talk about their emotional lives in the ways that women and girls do. 
Uh, this is where we live. Uh, with me in studio is Dr. Wisdom Powell. Again, she's director of the Yukon Health Disparities Institute. As we talk a little bit about this report card on the health equity of among boys and men of color, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, this report is broken down uh, in uh, a way so that you can see not only, again, some of the, the diseases and health issues that impact uh, men and boys of color, but again, the factors that can may be contributing uh, to these health disparities. Can you walk us through when we think about, um, we mentioned access to health care, but what about education and housing or just overall uh, rate of poverty and how that yeah. can uh, lead uh, to these disparities, Dr. Powell? Well, we know um, that economically secure and better educated boys and men have the greatest opportunity for better health and well-being. And really, that's what health equity is, really. Individuals having the fairest opportunity to live their healthiest lives and potential. And we know that there are great disparities in educational attainment, um, not just access to education, but also retention. Um, when we look at college uh, you know, completion rates, we see, for example, African-American men starting college um, but not necessarily finishing. And those uh, rates are not explained by academic insufficiency, right? It's explained by other potential stressors in their lives that are causing or contributing to their um, re uh, retention rates. We also see, um, for example, when we look at the report card uh, with respect to boys um, and girls um, reading and math proficiency, there's a disparity there where we see boys and girls of color sort of faring worse with respect to meeting the aptitude uh, proficiencies for math and reading um, in, in our state. We also see a significant amount of under and unemployment in men of color uh, for the state of Connecticut. And, you know, health is wealth and wealth is health. And the only way that you're really going to break out of cycles of poverty in many ways is to move upward in social, you know, in the social structure. Like you have to have access to education, employment, um, and, and good health care to live your healthiest lives. Earlier, we uh, touched on uh, the data not being there, uh, specifically when we look at uh, Native Americans, but also uh, the growing Asian mm -hmm. American population in the state of Connecticut. Uh, so where do we go from here in, in trying to capture better data for them? Yeah, I think that we um, we certainly need, um, uh, and, and, and I should say that there is already momentum behind um, this strategy for um, you know, aggregating or, or collecting disaggregated data by race, ethnicity, gender, and age. I mean, that movement has been underway long before I came to Connecticut. Many of my partners around the state, including Health Equity Solutions, um, which is another local uh, organization here in Hartford, have been working towards that end. The Office of Health Strategy, for example, is also working on this, this issue. But we do need more data transparency and more data sharing. And that, you know, to, for that to happen, there are a number of systems that have to align themselves. Um, first of all, we need, um, just from a basic IT point of view, we need capacity for systems to talk to each other, right? So that the data that you collect in a school system may be shared where appropriate with a health system, right? And we also need to be able to track people's social uh, experiences in health settings. 
So we need, you know, measurement and tools that can, um, you know, collect data on those social drivers of health when a person shows up in a doctor's office or a health system. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Dr. Wisdom Powell, Director of the Health Disparities Institute at UConn Health. We've been learning about the first ever Connecticut report card on the health equity among boys and men of color that her institute put out in collaboration with the State Department of Public Health. After the break, we're going to continue our discussion and learn how community partners are working to reach boys of color early to improve their health outcomes. You can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If policymakers and health experts want to get closer to health equity for all people in the U.S., there are a host of social factors that need to be addressed to reach better health outcomes. That's one of the messages from the first Connecticut report card on health equity among boys and men of color. We've been learning more about this report from my in-studio guest, Dr. Wisdom Powell, director of the Health Disparities Institute and associate professor of psychiatry at UConn Health. You can join us, too, the number 860-275-7266. Uh, so we were talking a little bit about some of the findings. So where do we go from here, uh, Dr. Powell, in terms of the main areas that, of recommendations that you might be sending, say, to Governor Lamont's office? Well, I think we absolutely need to leverage some of the gains that we've already had as a result of the Affordable Care Act. And those gains really made a significant, had a significant impact, for example, on insurance uptake among men in the country. For the first time in a very long time, we saw an uptick in the number of men who were accessing insurance. And that has really important implications. We also need to be thinking um, about um, introducing um, possibilities for male uh, well visits earlier in the life course for boys because we know that they end up coming to health systems at later dates than girls because of reproductive needs that girls have relative to boys and they're socialized uh, very uh, late in the life course around using preventive services. So we need sort of a culture of health equity introduced earlier, which includes getting them connected to health systems. I think, you know, when we look at the, the long view and we think about how we're going to really have the most impact in the lives of boys and men of color, it means offsetting also some of those potential early life adverse childhood experiences, right? So we need more trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive care, um, and also that uh, trauma-informed lens to be brought to other systems, like uh, systems of justice involvement, so that we have a clear sense of what the foundations um, are, are like for boys and men of color and how we can uh, positively impact the, 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 you know, those outcomes. Uh, Sarah is calling from Southeast Connecticut. Sarah, what's your question or comment? Well, it's more of a, a three-pronged uh, comment. Um, first of all, I hope that there are people on your committee that are not from the psychiatric background. I'm from the psychiatric background, so that's, that's why I reflect on that. Uh, secondly, I, I'm wondering if you're not tapping into the cultural issues for men. Um, and thirdly, a lot of these issues have been known from emergency rooms for years. Men do not seek help. Mm -hmm. um, culturally, I think that, that it's seen 
um, not just in black. It's, it's seen in all all colors. Uh, and I know a lot of men who are white who don't seek help. <laughs> it's available, but they won't seek it. So I, I'm hoping that you're delving into those areas as well. Thank you, Sarah, for your call. Dr. Powell, do you want to respond? Yeah, well, Sarah, that's a really uh, important insight, and I, I thank you for lifting it up for our listeners. Yes, it is true that men are less likely to utilize health services and to seek help for mental and, and emotional uh, health problems. And yes, I think that in order to tackle these issues, we have to do a little a bit of work in that area, too, and shifting attitudes and beliefs around help seeking so that men see it as an opportunity to demonstrate strength um, and also to be um, men about their health, right? To be, to, to show up um, for their families in different ways. Because here's why that's important. When men perish prematurely from conditions that we know we can prevent, um, there is a trickle-down effect on the lives of women and girls, on families, communities, and ultimately our nation. So this really is about us and changing the culture around help-seeking so that vulnerability in those instances are now viewed as a strength as opposed to a potential weakness. Uh, you've put out this, again, uh, report card on uh, uh, health equity among uh, men and boys of color, but uh, the work doesn't just end there once you have a report in front of you and then you send it off to uh, multiple stakeholders. You've also created an alliance uh, uh, to respond. Can you talk about who's on uh, this uh, alliance or participating and uh, you know how are they acting on some of these recommendations, Dr. Powell? So I should just say that this work can't move forward without the input of community partners who are boots on the ground, who are doing the heavy lifting day to day to impact the lives of boys and men of color in our state. And so when I arrived in Connecticut, I was really intentional about creating a multi-sector alliance um, of leaders, thought leaders, of program officials, of legislative officials who could come together and align strategies across these different areas of, of health equity to impact the lives of boys and men of color. So represented on that uh, alliance are members of school systems. We have you know, uh, folks who are participating in the legislative body. We have health directors, um, Department of Health directors, um, because we recognize the power of bringing all of us together in, to um, align our work around this cause. Uh, one of those partners is joining us in studio. Joseph Bumpers is community school director at West Middle Community School for the Boys and Girls Clubs uh, of Hartford. Uh, Joseph, welcome to our show. Thank you. Great to be here today. Uh, so born and raised in uh, Hartford, Connecticut? Yes, that's correct. Born and raised in Hartford, Connecticut. And you're part of this alliance. Uh, when this report card came out, uh, when you looked at the findings, what, what really struck you, Joseph? I think the, the, the findings that, that I had um, was understanding uh, the need to really address uh, these issues that are at hand, you know, uh, and also really to be able to find a way uh, and be used as a vehicle uh, through our agency to be able to inform uh, a broader audience uh, who may not be privy uh, to these outcomes. Um, and so I knew um, once we began to, you know, delve into um, the report card, um, myself being a part of the Harvard Community Schools Network as well, 
reached out to the Director of Partnerships for Student Success, um, as well as the uh, community, school, community School Coordinator um, to uh, see if we can have Dr. Powell and her team come to one of our networking meetings to introduce and also to provide uh, overview of what this report card consisted of and how we can be, uh, again, a vehicle to be able to uh, disseminate the information um, to a broader group because we all represent different schools, but the kids make up uh, the, the, the kids within those schools make up the population uh, within the city of Hartford. Uh, when you think about uh, your personal experience, uh, Joseph, again, growing up as a boy and now a man, uh, this report looking at uh, why uh, uh, men and boys of color um, have particular health disparities, some of the social factors at play. Um, when you think about your upbringing, does that ring true for you? Uh, I, would, I would have to agree. I mean, I think the, the one thing that... Um, we as, uh, you know, young black males or even, you know, as we progress in age, um, there is this um, thing of not really going to uh, the doctor as much. Um, I'm not certain if it has to do with um, uh, the male element um, of, of, of I'll be okay, I can take care of things, I'm supposed to take care of things, but really understanding that, uh, you know, uh, as... Uh, you know, men of color, um, it is very important um, for us to um, attend, um, you know, regular visits to uh, identify, to be able to make sure that there isn't any uh, particular health issues that are arising within our bodies, because oftentimes, as we know, you can go for years without really detecting anything. So for me, um, it does reign true, um, but I also had, you know, my dad was someone who uh, took me to the dentist. He uh, ensured that I did have doctor visits. Um, I think when I became that male uh, uh, adult, I began to sort of deviate from maintaining uh, those visits as I should have, um, which was initially instilled in me. So um, it's, it's interesting because we continue to have this dialogue out, even outside of this opportunity here today. This is a common dialogue that takes place as to why we don't tend to, um, you know, go to the doctor for routine checkups. Um, so I, I, I really think this is a, a great, great opportunity um, because it's, it's, we now are seeing the results that it's very critical and it has such a, an abdominal effect um, on the lives of um, our young men of color and ultimately the fathers within the communities. I wanted to unpack that a little further. Uh, Dr. Wisdom Powell, again, uh, we're hearing uh, first uh, Joseph uh, talking about, uh, again, uh, part, of about, uh, part of being a man sometimes is not wanting to ask for help or maybe not um, reaching out when they need help. And so does that tie into like, ideas of masculinity and, and what's, uh, when, when is it okay to, to go uh, and to a doctor and say, you know, something's bothering me or can I just uh, handle it myself? Well, I can say that um, my research, uh, which focuses a lot on uh, positive masculinities in, in black men, have shown that, you know, even when men embrace some of those uh, beliefs, that they still push forward and they seek help and seek health care. So that's one part of the of the dynamic, right, of this larger dynamic of, of help seeking, which is you know, a, one of those wicked problems we're still trying to unpack. But here's what I think is really um, important about it. I think that, you know, when we are um, 
trying to create a health system for men and boys that they will actually utilize and access, that we have to think about some of the potential barriers that get in the way of men seeking help. And that includes, you know, thinking about attitudes and beliefs, but it also includes things like making sure we have clinic appointment times that are available outside of normal working hours. Because men have a, have a, a real interest, vested interest in being providers for their families and breadwinners, which is critical. Mm-hmm. And a lot of men won't take time off of work to schedule a preventive visit, right? They'll do it for their children. They may do it for their spouse or partner, but they may not do it for themselves. And so flipping the clinic, right, so that we have hours of operations that are in the evening and on weekends that create health systems that men and boys will be, you know, able to access at times that make sense to them. Those are simple, you know, sort of structural things we can do to increase men's access to care. This is where we live. My in-studio guest, uh, Dr. Wisdom Powell, director of the Health Disparities Institute and associate professor of psychiatry at UConn Health. Also, Joseph Bumper is community school director at West Middle Community School for Boys and Girls Clubs of Hartford. Uh, Joseph, before we learn more about some of the programs that you have um, to reach uh, boys of color uh, through the Boys and Girls Club, I wanted to um, ask uh, uh, Wisdom, Dr. Powell, uh, to talk a little bit about the role of fathers. We heard Joseph say um, his dad uh, made sure that he went uh, to the dentist and followed up on appointments. Uh, But that's not always the case. That's so true. And I just want to say that fathers are such an essential part of the family system. And that we know that when fathers model um, healthy uh, habits and behaviors, boys and girls pay attention. So fathers have a unique role to play in getting boys uh, to health systems uh, and also getting boys to engage in more health-promoting health behaviors. My research has found that when men um, have fathers that told them early on in their uh, upbringing that they should use health systems similar to Mr. Bumper's, that those men were more likely to utilize health systems as adults. So fathers play a very critical role. And yet fathers are not um, receiving a lot of structural support, especially non-residential fathers, to be engaged in the lives of their children. So one of the things that I always talk about as a potential policy lever is increasing access to paid paternity leave for fathers, which is critical so that fathers can be there at the moment that children enter the world and they can play a role in shaping their affect, their behavior, their emotions, their cognitive development, and more importantly, in setting the stage for health engagement and health promotion across the life course. Uh, Joseph, I mentioned that you're with uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Hartford. Um, Part of uh, making sure that uh, people live a long, healthy life is starting intervention early. And so tell tell us about the youth that you're working with and what are some of the programs that emphasize healthy lifestyles? Yes, um, we actually uh, uh, focus on, well, we, we basically have three priority outcome areas, uh, which consist of academic success, good character and citizenship, and healthy lifestyles. And through those programs, there are a number of different programs that support the areas of academics, uh, character building, and ultimately leading a healthy lifestyle. Uh, one of those programs is just called Healthy Habits. Uh, Healthy Habits Program. Um, It's a nationally acclaimed Boys and Girls Clubs of America program uh, that consists of pre and post tests um, to uh, track the knowledge gained uh, over a course of between six to eight weeks 
Um, and then those are various cycles that kids are able to participate in the program um, to determine where their knowledge is concerned in, in the areas of healthy habits. And we also tend to um, utilize outcome out, outsourced um, collaborative partners to be able to provide supplemental uh, healthy habits um, programming because although we uh, have a great emphasis and focus of helping kids to uh, lead a healthier lifestyle, we know that uh, that's not our greatest area of expertise. So with that being the case, we also often look to, you know, groups like HDI um, because of what they're doing and also look to Hartford Food Corps, who is one of the national programs within the Hartford Public School System to provide um, supplemental uh, support uh, to our kids that participate in the program. When we talk about healthy lifestyles, it can mean many sorts of things, mm. but even something as simple as nutrition and yes. uh, a child uh, to making sure that they have enough to eat, first of all, so that they can focus on their studies. But then uh, after school, uh, not always being able to go home uh, to have a parent or parents there because they're working. And so it's easy to go to the corner store and get some junk food. So how do you uh, work through it with the, the kids about making choices like that? Because it's not always easy uh, to think about, you know, should I be getting these uh, these right. chips or, you know, eating an apple? No, I, I mean, it's, that's a great, great question. Um, we, what we try to do is give kids options to allow kids to know that, you know, we know the corner store is there. Um, we know that this is what this is called common practice because this is within our environment. So one of our jobs is to ensure that kids understand that um, who you become is not based on where you live. So we try to get kids outside of the community, um, bringing them to the lo local grocery stores, bringing them to the farmer's market, working with the farmer's market to bring into the community to be able to provide our young people and families with uh, different options of um, healthy foods uh, consisting of veg veg vegetables and fruits and um, various uh, meats uh, that are healthier uh, for our families and students um, as well as club members, um, and we stress students because of West Middle, but we also have a focal point for club members in the, our general clubhouses. But we also think what's important is that we help to educate the families, the parents, uh, the fathers, the guardians, because one of the things that we know is that if parents and, and, and or guardians are leading examples for their children, children are more apt to um, follow those areas um, that their parents have walked in. We just have a, a few more minutes. I wanted to go back to Dr. Wisdom Powell, again, director of the Health Disparities Institute at UConn Health. Uh, you know, your report looks at uh, many different factors, again, that can uh, impact uh, health outcomes for men and boys of color. But when we think about um, incarceration and how uh, that plays a part, uh, coming up, we're going to be talking with the child advocate about how incarcerated juveniles are treated in Connecticut. What can you tell us about uh, what your research, research has found? So in the report card, we thought it was really important to lift up uh, data around safety and incarceration uh, for males in the state. And we know that we have in our nation a disproportionate amount of men matriculating through prisons and juvenile justice institutions. And what that means is that nearly, uh, I mean, a significant amount of our population who could be working, contributing to our economy, innovating are now being housed in these institutions. And so we have to be thinking thoughtfully about 
what we're going to do for populations of men and boys and women and girls who are returning citizens. One of the things that was striking to me in this report card was the, the disproportionate number of African-American boys in Connecticut reporting being threatened or injured with a weapon on school property relative to other boys um, in their age group in the state. And I think that's important for us to lift up because we often don't think of men and boys as being threatened, mm -hmm. right? We always think um, we have a tendency, I think, to think of them as per perpetrators of violence rather than as being victimized. But we, our report card shows some striking data in that area that I think warrants further attention. We also see a disproportionate amount of these young men who are incarcerated moving from juvenile justice um, institutions into prison, adult prison populations. And that, that pipeline, if you will, um, warrants further um, further attention. Joseph Bumpers, before we head to break, did you want to add anything uh, to, again, uh, the uh, rate of incarceration of, of boys and men of color and how that impacts their health long term? I would say, I mean, I think it definitely does. Um, I think, um, you know, to Dr. Paul's point, I think of, you know, looking at what uh, alternative programs or what programs that are in place um, as you have these returning citizens that are coming back into mainstream society. Um, and I think that um, Boys and Girls Club, what we try to do is to provide uh, a safe, positive environment. We give kids uh, a sense of belonging, a sense of competence, a sense of usefulness and influence. And by doing that, I think we, we also give kids that sense, of, that sense of belonging allows you to know you don't have to feel you belong to sort of a somewhat of a negative sector or group. Um, to, to feel like you fit in, that you belong somewhere. And so we try to ensure and instill kids that you're in a safe, you're in a positive environment where you can grow, where you can learn, you develop, you, you, you're part of, you build supportive relationships, there's opportunities, there's expectations for you. Um, so we provide that structure. But there's also recognition. There's also fun that's infused um, for young men to be able to have fun. Because oftentimes uh, we think we have to take on this road to provide and to uh, be strong. But we lose the sense of sometimes being a child, being a young person, living um, and learning how to cultivate um, uh, 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 relationships and then even coping skills, cope with things that we are seeing in our environment and in our homes. And so um, we just try to model uh, with being a role model is all about at the Boys and Girls Clubs of Hartford. We're going to have to leave it there. Joseph Bumpers, Community School Director at Westbiddle Community School for Boys and Girls Clubs of Hartford. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me today. And Dr. Wisdom Powell, Director of the Health in Disparities Institute at UConn Health. Just, just a snapshot of this report card. We hope to have you back to talk further about your research. I would love to. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk with Connecticut's child advocate about a troubling report on how the state responds to incarcerated youth. You can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In the Yukon Health Report that we just talked about, it found that boys and men of color in Connecticut make up a greater number of incarcerated individuals than white males. Even more troubling are the number of black and African-American boys who are admitted to juvenile detention centers in Connecticut. In 2016, they were 10 times more likely to be involved in the juvenile justice system than their white peers. Just last week, the Office of Child Advocate released its report on how Connecticut is serving youth who are placed in custody 
Cassidy. Child advocate Sarah Egan joins me now with more. Welcome back to the show, Sarah. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Uh, we never have you on to talk about uh, uh, good news. Uh, this report was actually pretty troubling. Uh, tell us, first of all, why you looked uh, at uh, the juvenile facilities that respond to children um, that have gotten in trouble with the law. And which facilities are we talking about? So the legislature directed the Office of the Child Advocate a couple of years ago to do a comprehensive report, what's called Conditions of Confinement for Incarcerated Youth, across the state, no matter what agency is housing them. And in Connecticut at that time, three agencies uh, housed incarcerated youth, the judicial branch and the detention facilities for kids who had been charged but not yet, quote, sort of convicted or adjudicated of a crime, DCF, which which controlled the Connecticut Juvenile Training School for Boys, now closed as of April 2018, and then the Department of Correction, which is which confining uh, 15, 16, and 17-year-old boys and girls who were transferred to the adult correctional system because of the nature of their um, allegedly criminal acts. So walk us through uh, some of what you found in this year-long investigation. Uh, you profile uh, several different youth. Uh, one, uh, not his real name, Nathan, I believe. Uh, this was somebody that has, was involved in the juvenile justice system beginning at age eight, which I found really surprising. How did it happen? Right. So Nathan, in many ways, and we began the report with his story because while he is not emblematic of all children that touch the juvenile justice system, um, there are thousands of kids in Connecticut who may touch the system in some way that we do a great job with, diverting them from detention, meeting their needs in the community. Nathan's story is representative of many kids, mostly boys, mostly boys of color, and at the deep end of our system, mostly African-American boys who wind up in the deep end of our system. And his story looks a lot like their stories. You know, Nathan... Um, Nathan's family first was involved with DCF when he was an infant. Uh, by this point in time, Nathan's 17. His family's been the subject of more than six, 16 child protection reports to DCF. Both of his parents are on the DCF Central Registry. Nathan struggles with multiple mental health diagnoses. Nathan has been diagnosed with borderline intellectual functioning and problems with involuntary urination. Um, as you said, he was first in the system at eight years old for truancy, though as we know, eight-year-olds are not usually truant because there's somebody responsible mm -hmm. for helping them get to school. Um, and Nathan has never gotten the help that he needed, at least not enough of it and not for long enough. And that's why Nathan, in part, finds himself at the very deep end of our system as one of the youth that get tr gets transferred to the adult criminal justice system for very serious behavior that, yes, Nathan is responsible for. I think the point we're making in our report is that these boys and girls, there were six girls who went into the adult criminal justice system during the year of our review. There were over 100 boys who did that these boys and girls go into the system with tremendous need, tremendous deficiencies in their history, tremendous trauma, but they are going to come out back into the community, typically still as adolescents. And I think the unifying goal we have is one of public safety and rehabilitation. We are either going to meet the needs of the Nathans in our system, or we're not. And if we don't, we're not only failing them, we're failing our communities as well. So two overarching findings from our report are one, that number one finding, 
is that boys and girls of color are dramatically more likely to be incarcerated in our system, particularly the deep end of our system, than anyone else. And two, that Connecticut as a whole has not been effectively meeting the needs of our highest risk juvenile offenders. And why is that? Because uh, you would think that if somebody, especially a child, is um, had a traumatic background, um, maybe have learning disabilities, um, behavioral health issues, that they would, if they're going to be in the deep end, as you say, that they would be getting the most services. But that's not the case. Why is that? So we're talking about DOC, DCF, and, and the judicial branch. So the judicial branch has historically, the detention facilities have historically been short-term, what are called pre-adjudicatory facilities. They're not treatment programs. Now, change is is afoot and underway in the judicial branch as it's taking over DCF's responsibilities for higher risk um, committed youth, i.e. youth have been found to have committed juvenile offenses and are committed to state custody. Um, But at the time of our report, you know, the average length of stay in detention is, is about a week. Right. So that's enough to do safety planning, to keep kids safe, which the branch is very good at. But it doesn't it's not time to do treatment planning. And for kids who have the most significant needs, you know, they're they're not getting treatment in the detention centers at that time. You know, as for the kids who wind up in the deeper end of the system, particularly within the Department of Correction, it's certainly no fault of staff uh, doing the hard work in 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 our correctional facilities that they are not equipped to meet the intensive treatment needs of the kids that they're serving. Um, everyone wants to serve the kids well, but as a matter of state policy, for many years now, Connecticut has made the choice to treat 15, it used to be 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-old boys and girls as adults. Um, and this is, there are many scenarios where that doesn't work. It really doesn't work here. Uh, so let's walk, uh, let's get into that a little bit more. So the Department of Correction operates Manson Youth Institution. So children 15, 16, 17 uh, that uh, face uh, harsher uh, crimes that they've been charged with are incarcerated there. But are you saying that Department of Correction doesn't have the right tools to help these youth? That's exactly right, Lucy. So they're, they're they're staffed as an adult correctional system. They provide mental health services consistent with an adult system. Um, and, uh, and all other services. And what we found is that most of the youth, more than most of the youth who are incarcerated, are not receiving, well, there's no child who's receiving daily intensive services. We found that most children we looked at are missing tremendous amounts of school services, special education services, that there was very, very few youth receiving comprehensive mental health treatment. Um, we looked at 53 boys who were incarcerated at a point in time at Manson during our year of review and found that only four of the 53 had been identified as needing at least weekly mental health treatment. And yet we know from overwhelming research on the topic that almost all, that almost all of these boys have intensive mental health and behavioral health and educational needs. So we should be giving them the most, not the least. And again, it's, it's the way we staff and research resource, the adult system, Connecticut really has to ask itself, is it even possible to meet the needs of highly complex boys and girls 
in an adult correctional model? I think the answer is no. Uh, we know uh, there is lots of criticism, including from your office of the Connecticut Juvenile Training School, uh, even meeting the needs of youth uh, that were there. It, it closed uh, April 2018. Um, from my understanding, there really aren't a lot of alternatives for uh, these children who need a place uh, to stay uh, within the system. So where do we go from here, Sarah? Well, I think you're, you're right, you know, and, and, and the, the research nationwide tells us it's very challenging to meet the needs of children in confinement. Now, that being said, there are some kids who will need secure care while we work on their treatment needs before they can return to the community. And Connecticut has to get better at that. And I think the stakeholders recognize that. We talk about kids who, quote unquote, need secure confinement. We have to talk about what it is we want them to receive in secure confinement. Again, the unifying message here is kids come in as kids, most of them leave as kids. What would we want our kids to receive if, if God forbid, they were in that kind of trouble and, and had those kinds of needs? We'd want them to have treatment planning every single day. We'd want to make sure they're safe every single day. We'd want to make sure they got educated every single day. So, and, that, and that I, as the parent, was engaged in the process so that they could come out into the community and be safer and make healthier choices. That's the work we have to do. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, um, you're not just talking about the, this res, uh, report as a reason to do the right thing, but in some cases, uh, the state could be violating federal law. And so what do you want to see happen this legislative session to correct uh, these instances that uh, are troubling? So we have to start standardizing our approach to, to what adolescent kids need and are entitled to. There are many uh, legal entitlements to education services, special education, adequate mental health, and to be free from detrimental and harmful conditions such as solitary confinement. One of our most significant findings is that uh, kids in the Department of Correction are still subject to solitary confinement despite state law banning such administrative segregation of minors. And, and, and overwhelmingly, experts have found that even short periods of isolation can be tremendously damaging to children, um, result in increasing their risk of suicide, significant anxiety and depression. Nathan, we found with all of his needs, again, intellectual functioning issues, uh, clinical needs, in nine months at, at Manson, he was subjected to more than 70 days of prolonged isolation where he's in his cell more than 23 hours a day. He can't get better that way. And communities can't be made safer that way. And that condition very well may violate Connecticut law. Sarah Egan, again, is the uh, child advocate for the state of Connecticut. Uh, we're going to link to her report uh, at Where We Live. Uh, still a lot to talk about, but we're running out of time. We'll probably be talking with you again this legislative session to see what changes uh, have been made. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. If you're at the Quiet Corner, come see us at the Pomfret uh, Vanilla Bean Cafe at 1130 today. We hope to see you.